0: Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here, welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast, and I'm here with a new friend, David Maguire, we're at the Esplanade Hotel in Fremantle, just before he gets off home to Shanghai, can I say home, David? Well that's my next destination, yeah, well that's where I'm living for the next semester, effectively, right. in right, Shanghai, right. where I'm teaching at Fudan University. Fudan University. Yeah. And we were just talking about life in newsrooms, can you reconjure for me what you were just saying about your time as an editor, we'll go through your history a bit, but let's think about the literal physical experience of working in and running a newsroom in the way you work? Well, it's a collegial environment, a newsroom, and whether you're, whether you're a backbench person or you, whether you're a news editor, whether you're the editor, you, you, you need to establish a rapport with your reporters, with your editorial staff, and by dint of that, you have a hunger. Or information. I mean, we are news junkies as journalists, mm, and even mm. as academics, we're information junkies. Mm. Um, so you want to know what's going on. You want to know what people are saying, what they what they're hearing, and, and what what their attitude to a story is. Maybe you can affect the lead in a story. Maybe maybe you can affect the thrust of a story mm. just by giving advice or, or bouncing around ideas. And I think this this rapport in a newsroom is is um, it's just a wonderful environment to. Uh, operating in a collegial atmosphere and sometimes you know you think that universities in times do have collegial environments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there are formal collegial environments but sometimes they need to be informal as well mm. and, where people you know kick around ideas and mm-hmm. bounce uh, concepts off each other and sometimes even collaborate together to pursue those ideas. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess in science there's the idea of the workbench as being crucial to research, isn't there? When you're literally physically sitting along in some kinds of doing science anyway. In a The same space in a laboratory, at the bench, doing things. Mm. Not unlike a newsroom in certain ways. But one thing you mentioned to me just before we started recording was that in your time as an editor, you've also sometimes gone out reporting with the reporters. Yeah, I have. And uh, look... And as an editor, you get, you get put into an office and you, you're you mm. given executive roles and you've got to sign documents and you've got to manage uh, the business side of running a, an editorial budget as much as you've still got to manage the content. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was important for me and, and I, I just wanted the adrenaline rush often of being involved in the big story. Mm. So be, becoming involved with reporters on the big stories, even if it's just helping, guiding the direction mm. they're mm. going to take or how they were going to go over, get over a problem in accessing the information that that to me was a very important it's a very important role for an editor as as a, as a mentor or as a guide mm. to younger reporters mm. to get things done but also you know there's a very selfish aspect of this you want to get the best story possible to sell mm-hmm. more newspapers yeah. let's go back 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 as they say in baseball commentary to when you started as a journalist when you saw the man or the woman, probably the man in the corner office, walking around with his or her sleeves rolled up as the boss. When did you start as a jobbing journalist and where? Well, it was a long time ago. It was in uh, in Melbourne. I was a cadet reporter at, at 3AW in Melbourne. Which is an AM radio station. And it was an AM radio station. It was part of the Macquarie Broadcasting Network at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a cadet reporter. That was my very first job. Um, and. Uh, well, I had to pump out uh, stories on teleprinters to be fed around the rest of the yeah. uh, rest of the network. network. and yeah. this was uh, maybe Australia's first private sector radio network, was mm, it? That it was could, that was thriving in the certainly the sixties and seventies. Mm. And you would uh, Melbourne is one of the big population centres in Australia, and still is a, a major news area. Sports were quite important at Three AW at one time. Yes, they were. Football was very important. Uh, talk radio was very important. Mm, there, were, mm. there were gurus of talk radio by the name of Ormsby Wilkins mm, and Norman mm. Banks. And, mm-hmm. and I would uh, produce news bulletins for, during their programs and, and often read news for their, for their programs. And were these guys what we would think of today as shock jocks? Well, or was it different then? I think it was a little more measured then. Mm. Uh, not as shock as it is today. Although I would say that Neil Mitchell in Melbourne, I wouldn't call him a shock jock.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I think uh, he has sort of sustained uh, the, um, uh, the tradition of those, of the early 3 um, AW and 2GB, I think was the sister station in Sydney. In Sydney it was, the yeah. uh, the, the, the style of uh, talkback radio and commentary, uh, Darren Hinch was probably a shock jock in, in the mould that you're probably thinking, yeah. but, um, but Neil Mitchell not, so. not and, so, and more measured and more thoughtful. The reason I ask is that, I guess, one one senses that some shock jocks actually say, Darren Hinch wouldn't say this, wouldn't have said this, but others do, I'm not a journalist, I'm an entertainer. And they do that to try to elude regulation. Yes, yes. Well, this has come up in in my lectures and and in tutorial discussions about, well, you know, okay, so Alan Jones is is specifically not a journalist. He is a commentator. Mm -hmm. He's not a trained journalist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he should be subject to the same ethics that we as journalists and that I'm sure that Neil Mitchell follows. Mm. Um, And, and, you know, Darren Hinch, yes, he was a trained journalist and uh, he worked for the Fairfax organisation in Australia as well as in in New York. So, yeah, there are principles that have got to be um, Applied. applied. Alan Jones is a fascinating character, formerly coach of the Australian National Rugby Union team, formerly a high school teacher, formerly head of the New South Wales Employers' Federation, and now, I don't know if he's nationally syndicated, he is, very successful shock jock, who has in fact been subject to serious uh, sanction by the regulator of telecommunications in Australia because of this business of, in a sense, advertorials, Mm. I suppose you could say, Mm. where money is changing hands for specific positions being enunciated in a way that is not about simply, you take your salary and you go out and find a story. It's about putting a particular angle on a product or whatever. So you're at 3AW. This is in the 70s, perhaps? This is in the 70s, In the 70s. I I, uh, was then transferred to 2GB in Sydney, where Mm -hmm. I stayed a couple of months, and then came back to Melbourne, got a job as a newspaper reporter, Mm. Uh, became involved in um, Age, suburban newspapers, worked on the age. Which is the major... Daily newspaper in Melbourne still and now is part of this Fairfax stable of newspapers that includes the Sydney Morning Herald that David was just alluding to. And uh, Creighton Burns was the editor oh. at that stage. So um, Very famous editor. Yes, and then uh, I, I left uh, for purely financial reasons to go and work for Maxwell Newton on the, uh, on the Sunday Observer. Uh, and that was a very interesting period. Uh, Maxwell Newton was Melbourne's pawn king at the time, but he did produce a shock jock sort of Sunday newspaper in the very early days of mm. Sunday newspapers mm. in Melbourne. This is before the Sunday press and uh, those two newspapers don't exist anymore. And he was also an enfant terrible of financial journalism, a fascinating figure. I'll say this without having, well I have met him, well, I did meet him, but he's passed away I think he since. Has. but Quite mad, quite brilliant. Mm. Um, I won't ask you to pass comment. To he was an inaugural editor of the Australian that's right, which is Rupert Murdoch's newspaper, national newspaper in Australia, which turned 50 this year. Yeah, and Rupert, Rupert was um, very good to him in, in Max's later years. Was uh, he? Okay. And, uh, and gave him an opportunity to write for various journals based in... in uh, Max was based in New York, and, uh, and Rupert's uh, publications took a lot of his financial Rupert? writings. What was it like shifting from radio to the newspaper? Radio was a great training ground. Because it gives you great skills in writing precisely uh, mm. and sharply to the, mm. to the point of the story. So in the first, uh, you've got 30 seconds, you've got uh, 25 words for four paragraphs for 30 seconds of news, read, radio, and that's, that's how it moves. Yeah. That. So yeah. it gives you great training um, to write in a lean way and get the facts yeah. as, uh, as much as possible into four to eight paragraphs. Every journalist has an eye on the clock. And the thing about radio is the clock doesn't doesn't go for hours. It doesn't even go for minutes. Well in those days we were you know the luxury of uh, of that era was that uh, I was producing a half hour news bulletin. <laughs> okay, uh, pardon an me. And you know I think back now and I'm thinking you know these radio the radio news of today is 1 minute, maybe 2 minutes mm-hmm. uh, on the hour bang 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 on commercial radio. Well it's the same on Radio 1 on the BBC. Mind you, they have 414,000 journalists producing <laughs> one minute, an hour, in any event. OK, so suddenly you're thrust from the reasonably civilised, if highly competitive, world of 3AW and age suburban newspapers to tabloid journalism, mm. which requires, a, I imagine, a particular kind of intellect and drive and verve and all sorts of things that's different. I think this is where, this is where the... This is where you learn and this is where I learned how to sell a story because, Mm -hmm. you know, Melbourne was very sleepy and uh, didn't wake up early on Sunday morning. (laughs) In In fact, there was no no retail trading. Um, So it was a very sacrosanct day as Mm. far as the culture of Melbourne was concerned and we needed to get people to buy this newspaper. It was the first and only available Sunday newspaper at the time and it was breaking new ground. So it needed to be very, very tabloid, probably in the the Sydney tradition. Mm. given that there was no Melbourne tradition of Sunday newspapers at the time. Can you explain no Sunday trading and explain what that Sydney tradition was? Because for listeners in the US, the Sydney tradition to which David refers is what Murdoch has done in the United States in lots of ways. Yes, indeed. And, and in Britain. And it's a very, it's a very uh, content-driven approach to the design of newspapers, to the pursuit of stories, uh, and it's, it's selling, selling, selling. So it's pretty mm. much mm. an internet popular internet uh, site uh, style 20 to 30 to 40 years ago Mm. so it was very very out there and up there and out front and it was driven by the the product sold itself on the basis of the content and how the content was treated so there were shocking pictures there was there were there were big headlines uh, and there were big exclusive reads uh, that came from sources that uh, you would never find the story elsewhere. I mean, these are exclusive showbiz stories, scandal stories, political stories, etc. And crime stories. And crime. If it bleeds, it leads. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, exactly. um, So sensationalist stuff. And there's a lot of snobbishness about that kind of journalism. How, what do you think about it? Well, there's snobbishness about it, but you know, t- journalists that I teach uh, now in Australia are snobby about... Um, uh, about uh, you know shows like Today Tonight uh, and A Current Affair, which come, which run at six thirty after the news, and are very very consumer scandal focused. And I say, guys, these stories check out. They're checked out by uh, by professional journalists who run, who have had the same ethics training that you guys have had. They're earning a hundred thousand dollars a year, and they don't get hit by libel suits. These stories are true and factual. You don't like the, the style of the stories? Well, that's fine. You don't have you don't have to work for those shows, but you, if you can get a job with the the London Times or with the New York Times, you go ahead and get it. But you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. So you've got to do, uh, and there's no harm in being trained in an entire kaleidoscope mm. of news collection. Sure. And it's interesting that in Britain, for example, I think I'm right in saying the highest paid paper journalist at the Daily Mail. Mm. And it is now the most successful online paper almost in the world. Just started up in Australia. Did it. Its online version is wildly popular in the US. It's all T and A Mm. there. Whereas in in Britain, it's not all that at all. It's just extremely tabloidy and very reactionary. The guys there are getting paid maybe three or four times what you get if you're a nice left liberal of the Guardian. But you're asked, as a journalist at the Daily Mail, you're asked to do a long read. Yeah. Uh, you're not writing very. You're not writing succinctly, and there's depth to the story. So mm. there's a lot of there's a lot of skill involved in, in the mm. Daily Mail style of journalism. Right. Mm. So okay, we've got you to the point of radio to suburban newspapers to a big startup Sunday tabloid. What happens after that? And then I go to work for Rupert Murdoch in uh-huh. Brisbane. So in Brisbane in 1982, uh, there was uh, Rupert started uh, a, a tabloid newspaper. In colour, the first tabloid newspaper in colour in, uh, in Australia, if memory serves me well, um, called the Daily Sun. It was, he set it up in opposition to the Courier Mail, and uh, and I worked there for five years under uh, under John Hardigan, who was the editor. Uh, I worked with Col Allen, who's the current editor of the New York Post, um, and uh, we we created from scratch, from nothing, no market, a new tabloid newspaper in a city that had been dominated by a Tired and it's even more tired today, at least from my occasional readings of the Courier-Mail. So you've just mentioned Col Allen, who is a mythic figure in United States mm. journalism now, and you've mentioned Rupert Murdoch a couple of times. I don't want you to say things you don't want to say in mm. public about sure. those sorts of people, but I can't help but ask you what it was like working for Col Allen. Um, Col is a highly professional newspaper editor. Is a um, uh, is very measured in in how he wants his stories to be uh, presented. Um, yeah. Brisbane was a very conservative town at the time, yes, yes. very very conservative, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it, it certainly isn't, wasn't the New York environment in which Cole operates today. No. Um, so he's progressed from uh, taking over the Daily Telegraph in Sydney after he went to after he left Brisbane, uh, and then on to, on to New York. Um, we had uh, invigorous, invigorating times working with Cole. We produced great newspapers, uh, thanks to his leadership, and, uh, and uh, he was very respectful of the journalists that worked for great. him and nice. with him, and was collegial in, in his approach. Great. What are some of the stories that you worked on that stand out for you, thinking back to those times? It's a long time ago. <laughs> I was going to say, are there any that stand out? <laughs> it's a long time ago, and uh, bear in mind that we were we were creating something from nothing in an environment that didn't in a market that didn't necessarily want us. So it was mm-hmm. Brisbane wasn't prepared wasn't necessarily ready. Although we did find that it became very open to to our style of uh, morning newspaper, uh, and it was a town that had we were the third newspaper in the town. the they, there was a very vibrant uh, afternoon daily, which the first edition, you know, was mid-morning and mm. it had the first coverage of the first big court cases of the day. So, you know, the, the margin for, for us in this market was very small, but yep. uh, we created the market. Um, as, news, as the newspaper industry has uh, changed, of course, now there's only one newspaper left in that town, um, as there is in Perth, as there is in Adelaide. Melbourne and Sydney being the only two competitive newspaper environments yeah. uh, left in Australia. But the paper, the, the, the Daily Sun, disappeared after about 10 years yeah, um, as, the, as the market changed. You were well gone by then. I was on, I'd was i been hired into Hong Kong where I took over as editor of the Sunday Morning Post in Hong Kong, mm. um, which Rupert Murdoch owned at the time. So he presumably knew you and got a recommendation from Cole Allen? I don't know that. Right. Uh, and I wouldn't presume to say that, but right. uh, okay. I went straight into into Hong Kong, and um, yeah, what was that like? First first time first working outside Australia. Yeah, yeah. and uh, um, it, Hong Kong was a was a place where Margaret Thatcher had decided that well, you can now go back to the Chinese. We don't uh, want you after nineteen ninety seven, and there was huge political trauma and mm. debate about institution of the basic law about what was what was China going to do to us there were refugees flying from China into Hong Kong there were people leaving Hong Kong to go and live in Canada to try and get passports around the rest of the world so that they wouldn't be subject subjected to what they anticipated uh, was coming for them from China after 1997 uh, during this period um, there's a thing called Tiananmen Square that happened in uh, 1989, and uh, I happened to, be, happened to be on my watch uh, on the night of uh, Tiananmen Square, so we worked for 24 hours during that uh, particular event, uh, and were, I was quite amazed at, at the flow of information from Beijing in terms of photographs, colour photographs, uh, and copy that was allowed to come out of uh, the capital at the time. Given that, you know, it was a very, very controlled environment as far as news was concerned, I think it's about to rain. How about we just move under this cover? So that's 25 years ago this year. Um, what would be your, your kind of principal memories, looking back, and thoughts on that momentous event to have been present at one of the truly, truly significant world historical moments? Well, I, an abiding memory of the night is is. You know, our China editor, David Chen, his shoulders slumping further and further during the night as he got his own private messages coming in from Beijing that the crackdown was happening tonight. And as the tanks started to roll, you know, I could see just see the spirit uh, of his love of China disappear from his, from his being. Um, and the executives uh, uh, who had come into the, I mean, people flooded into the newspaper office on that particular night, as, as the, the news got out of what was happening in the square, uh, in Tiananmen Square, and uh, you know, I was trying to get out a newspaper, but there were all these people hanging around, watching, wanting to be a part of the event, and, and that, was, that was quite extraordinary to me. Uh, and I had to—I stopped the presses at 1:30 uh, to do a special Tiananmen Square edition, uh, and finally got that edition onto the streets about 6 a.m. And of course, that was a sellout. Um, but it wasn't, you know. See, it wasn't the, the victory of getting a newspaper out that had the coverage in it. It was, it was really the feeling of, what does this all mean now to Hong Kong? What does it mean to the role of China and the rest of the world? Absolutely, as a result of what they'd done, yeah. what Deng Xiaoping had done. So you, at one stage, were surprised by the openness of the coverage. Yes, because well, I was, and I was thankful. Yeah, but, but uh, Gorbachev had been in Beijing at the time, and and CNN and all the world's media had had, had set up uh, transmission in Beijing to cover the Gorbachev visit. Now this was the Gorbachev Rapprochement with uh, with China, the Russia mm. and China Rapprochement mm. through Gorbachev. He was in town, but in, while he was in town, all the students were in the square. So CNN um, and and all the world's press were there, and the, the satellite transmission systems were still in place uh, or being being dismantled but not fully had been dismantled Mm. Mm. as what happened in the square took place and we forget perhaps gorbachev was still the head of the soviet union at that time and huge news in the west so it's chance that there was so much coverage in the west yes in certain sense. yes Mm. yes Um. i I couldn't imagine how limiting well i can imagine how limiting we wouldn't have got very much at all out of tenements, we were out of Beijing. Had not these the new technology of satellite uh, communication been available? There was no, I, I remember uh, talking to radio reporters in, in Hong Kong a couple of weeks afterwards, and they were telling me how they had reporters in Beijing actually filing to air with these huge handsets, which were the, 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 the mobile phones of the day. With gigantic batteries, with gi- gigantic <laughs> Way to batteries. a ton. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, filing direct into the newsroom from the square on these gigantic... Mm. Yeah, again, something that couldn't have happened. Well similarly, when the coup occurred in 91 against Gorbachev, of course, if one of the mistakes that the coup plotters made was not to control the telephones, because faxes were very important in getting out information yes. for those who managed to sustain whatever kind of democracy you can yeah. say was there. So. A fascinating thing you said was that at one point you had to make a decision to close the edition. When there is an earth-shattering event happening and you don't have a rolling news cycle in the way that television news and newspapers have today because of the web. when you've got to go to print, how on earth do you make that decision? You've got to make that decision. I mean, I had had an edition finished and ready to go um, at 1.30. Uh, and I said, okay, I think we're going to have to hold this thing because I, I didn't know what was going to come from Beijing uh, mm. in terms of uh, images and copy. Um, and so I had an edition to go at one thirty that would have put a paper onto the streets. I said, okay, we're not going to print this edition. We're going to hold this edition because we're going to totally reorganize the paper to take in everything that's happening in Tiana Square. If we put out the edition that we've got now, we are totally irrelevant in four or five hours' time if it's on the street in that in that form. So, kill it and start again. So, we started again in producing the news section of the newspaper, which, uh, which was the first one to three, one to five, one to five pages, plus I added uh, an eight-page broadsheet special, which was principally um, full of photos, colour photos that came out of the... Out of Tiananmen square, and what were you relying on, or whom were you relying on for reporting? Be it visual or verbal. Well, we had the agencies: AFP, UPI, Agence some, France Presse, United Press International. Yes. Um, uh, AP, Associated Press, which is the US. US yes. Yeah. Uh, and we had our own correspondents, uh, Marlo Hood and Seth Basin, in Beijing at the time, yeah. and they were filing. Uh, so there was plenty of copy coming through. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and the same agencies were pumping out photographs. Mm. So, okay, we subscribed to those agencies, we took what they could give us, and mm. thankfully they gave us as much as we needed. And this is a very famous newspaper. What was the, what was the readership of the newspaper? Well, the readership in, uh, in Hong Kong was all the expatriates and the uh, and wealthy and, uh, and highly educated uh, Hong Kong Chinese. The English, English speakers. Now, of course, you've mentioned the number of people both from the mainland, if you can call it that, the People's Republic of China coming to Hong Kong at the time, the number of Hong Kongers wanting to leave. What about these expats you who, know, it's often said, they had a pretty pushy line yes. and then were getting worried about where to go and what to do? The English speakers, not many English people, who had been ruling Hong Kong for 140 years. Well, they um, they were re- trying to read the situation as to how long would it be possible for them to continue to stay in the colony. And it was a British colony. Mm-hmm. So, how long were they were they going to be able to stay there? So, if the handover was going to be 1997. OK, that's fine, Well, we can say perhaps uh, measure measure our time up to 1997 and see what happens beyond. Or we can go back to the UK or go back to the US or wherever now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, 19, in 1989, there was a, there was a, a, a really severe uh, wake-up call given to the entire Hong Kong as to this is how they're dealing with their own people uh, in Tiananmen Square, how are they going to deal with us? Yeah. So you know, people had to make their own personal decisions uh, in terms of career and family, yeah. how long they stayed there. And this must have been not only something that you covered, but thought about for yourselves, but it must also have been a financial and political thing for the newspaper itself. Yes. Um, the newspaper itself was, uh, was uh, sold off by uh, Mr. Murdoch to another company, I think in, mid- in the early to mid-1990s. Um, and it was sold to a Malaysian sugar baron, who uh, I believe uh, still owns the Shangri-La Hotel chain, so it's a big property developer in Hong Kong, in China. Uh, and it it continues to exist today as a as a strong defender of Hong Kong and perhaps not to its own, in its owner's its interests, but as a severe critic of China. Mm. So it still holds on to the ethos of the South China Morning Post mm. that was there when I was there, and that has been really uh, redolent of the, uh, the organisation since it was started. Now again, I don't want you to say more than you're comfortable saying, David, but there is a lot of speculation, without leaving much empirical evidence, about Rupert Murdoch's relationship to editors. To the extent that you feel comfortable, what can you say about what it was like having him as the prize? Well, look, I've heard all these stories, and I uh, and I, I don't really make too many comments about them. To anyone, only in personal conversations. Mm. But I've never mm. been, I've never been given a direction by Rupert Murdoch in any way as to how a story should be run or any of his senior executives as to what should be in the newspaper. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that, so after the. And the rain's really pouring down here. It's the first prediction I've made in fifty-six years of life that was correct about our uh, having to move back. We've got to move even further back, under cover here. So, you're there for how long? I was in Hong Kong for five years, hmm. and then I came back to Australia to uh, to work uh, within the news organisation. And I I had a uh, I, I took over as editor of a paper in place called Cairns, which is in, in northern, northern, Queensland. northern Queensland. Yeah. But then I was transferred to uh, Western Australia to be managing director of the Sunday Times in Western Australia, which is, is the first newspaper that uh, Rupert Murdoch ever purchased after he had inherited uh, the Adelaide newspaper. That was the only product left of his uh, father's uh, estate. Yeah. So I took over the Sunday Times, turned that into—I I took over the time where it was ready to be. Uh, to be going to new presses, and it was in fact the last colour newspaper, the last mono newspaper in Australia within the news group to be converted to a, to a colour newspaper. So I guess I've topped and tailed my career by being on the first and, and making the conversion of the last to colour. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the Sunday Times. Well, the Sunday Times. I mean, I would have loved to have had a daily newspaper to run at the same time as the Sunday Times, but uh, we only had the Sunday Times. Uh, we had a lot of press capacity, so we had uh, we've got fifty. We had fifty percent share. Well, the the organisation still has fifty percent share of uh, the community newspaper group in Australia. Uh, sorry, in Perth, uh, and it also prints the Australian here. So it's got plenty of capacity. It was one of the first uh, news organisations in Perth to actually go online. Um, and uh, look, I think it's it's uh, it's still a vibrant and good newspaper in a market that is quite distant from the rest of Australia. So perhaps the changes in in, in the competitive environment, as far as the internet and traditional media are concerned, have been slow to take to take effect here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yes, the uh, uh, the march towards online news is affecting everything here. So. Mm-hmm. Now. Let me ask you a more general question about journalism. Some people say that the big thing with journalism for the future, particularly for newspapers, is to add value. Not so much reportage, but rather considered investigation, analysis and opinion that you can't get competently in rolling news cycles on television. Yesterday, in a conversation we had, you mentioned content as being the key distinguishing feature of journalism. What feature is there for a standalone Sunday paper? Is it something that is meant to be more contemplative, more for the reader who's lying down having a croissant and coffee and wants to be entertained, but also get things in greater depth? It it needs that. I mean, the recipe on a Sunday is is, a good investigation, a good, solid investigation with a long read, but it's also good feature reads as well, mm. um, and, and it's and it's then it, it, pres, it presents a, 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 a menu of uh, of what a Sunday reader is looking for in the particular market. Mm-hmm. So deep uh, depth reading, depth reads, maybe uh, uh, you know a chapter out of a new book, uh, long interviews, uh, but good investigations mm. um, and good exclusive news stories. A Sunday, in a Sunday newspaper, you need to know. On Wednesday or Thursday, that you've got to rip a ripper reed and you need to sit on it in the hope that no one else is going to pick it up and you know how to treat it, you know how to work it, you get the different angles, you talk to all the players, and you make sure it's a complete story. Yeah, well, this is the value of audio actuality. <laughs> We've got some kids who are having a lot of fun here diving in and out of this hotel swimming pool while the aged white guys are hiding under the eaves of the hotel roof. So what happens to you after the Sunday Times, Steve? So what happens after the Sunday Times? Well, um, I then take a a right turn and go and start uh, an economic development organisation in Cairns. I go back to that city, start an economic development organisation where I start to uh, develop trade relationships between between the city of Cairns, incidentally, which is having the G20 Finance Ministers meeting in the next couple of weeks. Um, the So I start investigating uh, trade relationships between Northern Australia and China. So I, I'm leading uh, a business delegations into China, into Shanghai, into Guangzhou, uh, throughout the, wherever the opportunities are in China to try and generate um, tourism revenue, but also business revenue to sustain and to build uh, the economic base of the city away mm. from tourism into, into mm. more um, into stronger business right. relationships. Along the way, I come across uh, a former colleague of mine who is running the Shanghai Daily. And uh, who is looking to get out and is looking to find someone who will take over the Shanghai Daily from him as the as the uh, general manager? Uh, and that person uh, uh, was me. Uh, after six or seven months of uh, talking about it, I moved from Cannes to go and live in Shanghai and take over the Shanghai Daily. Wow! Now, the Economic Development Organization was that a startup, an it's entirely a, new, an entirely new startup? Wow. Uh, a new organization. I was the founding CEO. Uh, I worked there for five years. That's still operating. Um, and I think with startups, with startups and with change managers, startups and change managers, you have a limited lifetime. You have a limited limited, ex- limited uh, duration in the job because you've got to hand it over to another manager. Or uh, well, once you've done the change management, it needs to go to a uh, manager who's going to sustain the changes that have been put in place, but, but settle things down. Yes. I quite agree, I think it's very important to let go. Very tough for people to do, especially when they've started something because it's so appealing and almost narcotic to think of oneself as indispensable. Yeah. But so, people, people get tired of you as well. People get tired of change. So here's, if this is the person who's been driving the change, we want to see him out of here. Because, yes, you've done some really great things. You've done the change management. Go so that we can just get back to a normal plane of operation. Yeah. So you need another manager to come. In yeah. So if you go to Shanghai. What year is this? This is 2007. And what was it like? Well... Look, I can run I can run media in Australia, uh, but I was given uh, a masterclass in running media in Shanghai by the Chinese that I was working with. Uh, it was a very interesting situation, and uh, I learned a lot about uh, staff relationships from the Chinese. I learned a lot about um, media management in China. I learned a lot about uh, content management in China and how you don't. <laughs> And um, it, uh, well, I'm still there, and I'm now teaching. I'm now teaching media management in China to students from the London School of Economics that come into Fudan University to do a double degree program. So, tell me about what they taught you on labour relations. Let's say it, it was a government-owned entity uh, with a, uh, uh, an Australian company. As the as the joint venture manager of its advertising and circulation section, so um, the the side of uh our government the government run side of the business is that you, if you're working for a government entity, you're there for life effectively. Uh, there are significant numbers of different superannuation funds that have got to be managed and have got to be supported. So uh, I learned about the structure of state-owned enterprises Mm. in China and how to operate within them. And what about the relationship between state and party? Because one of of the things that confuses a lot of us is where the government and the Chinese Communist Party begin and end. I don't don't see that there's too much difference. It's not discernible the difference. Uh, It's a state-owned enterprise. It's a state-owned enterprise operating under the auspices of the central government. Or the, or the Shanghai government, and uh, pretty much they're all subscribing to the same rules. What about journalistic ethics and freedom of content, freedom of speech? Well, you know it's different uh, in each uh, environment in which newspapers are published, uh, and we've all, we must always recognise the rules of the, the rules that we publish in. And mm. the rules of the central government are strong as far as what goes into a newspaper as well. mm-hmm. And I've been in situations whereby Shanghai reporters have gone to cover an event and the uh, the editor of the day has been given a direction that you'll take the Xinhua service as opposed to your own local reporter's rendition of the story. So and that's, what the, that's what the party secretary who's sitting in the editorial section uh, determines will go into the newspaper. Um, and that's, that's how it works. And that wouldn't have been your experience before, as either a journalist or an editor. No, there's no, there's very little freedom in terms of what is published. I, I cannot say, I cannot, I, and well, I cannot say that journalists don't submit the story that they believe is the right story that should be written, but it doesn't necessarily always get published. Mm. I am and now, now teaching young journalists in China and young Chinese journalists as I do. I know that they are very, very well aware of the strictures that the government places on them as journalists. They still want to be journalists and they still want them to, to try to make a difference within Chinese society. So there's a will there within the younger generation to make it, to make change. But they also pragmatically recognise how the government uh, determines uh, what is published. When you were there, were you frustrated by this? I was frustrated that good stories didn't get a run here. Is there any kind of pattern you can discern looking back as to what would get through and what wouldn't? Could you guess at the time? Well, I guess in, in, a, in a broader perspective, you've got to think when you're looking at a story, well, how is this, who is this going to embarrass or what is this going to place in jeopardy as far as the central government is concerned or the Shanghai government is concerned? So you've got, you've got to try to read the tea leaves And see, well, why did China watch her in Hong Kong in the old days? Mm. So, you know, when we see, when we're we're watching China from Hong Kong in the old days, it was, well, what what is the press saying and what does this really mean? So, when you are in China in situ and trying to publish and the story doesn't get up or it's it's, uh, it's knocked on the head before it's published, you've got to think, well, so what is the background to the reason why it's not being published? Mm. Um, and it could be it could be a very simple reason, or it could be a very complicated reason. Mm-hmm. But the party operative who was in the newsroom when mixing something wouldn't say to you, "This is why." It's not said to me, no. It's uh, it's only held the information is held at the highest level, and the journalists don't question. Wow. So you do that, and. It must have been an incredibly dynamic and exciting time to be in Shanghai, maybe the most vibrant city in the world at that time. Very much so. Uh, It was at the time of a huge earthquake in 2008. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I experienced a lot of... uh, I experienced China surviving the the global financial crisis at the time. I experienced uh, a lot of human tragedy within the country that we were reporting. Uh, I experienced the Shanghai Expo in 2010, which was just an amazing event. The entire city was transformed. You know, four or five different underground uh, services were built to service, to service uh, Shanghai as a result of that. The, the city was totally transformed. And I guess, I mean, I go back to Hong Kong often and I say, I say to myself, it, it's true, they're never going to finish building Hong Kong. Well, it's the same as true in Hong Kong, in China. They're never going to stop rebuilding, knocking things down, putting, putting up new apartment blocks, putting in new freeways, whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a totally dynamic country. And uh, while it now has challenges uh, with its uh, GDP growth, which is now teetering towards 7%, um, and they lament the fact that it's no longer in double-digit figures, that it's not 10% anymore, you know, there are countries around the rest of the world, particularly in Western Europe, that, that won't see 1% GDP growth, let alone 7%. So China is, uh, is still living in a sort of a, an economic bubble in comparison with the rest of the world. But it's still, but it's now having its problems. Well, you look at some of the photos of environmental despoliation in Shanghai, and you read some of the epidemiology of diseases experienced by residents. It's quite shocking. Yes, and they've got a lot to deal with, Uh, but it's still, it's only 30 or 40 years since Deng Xiaoping put all of this in place. So it's one generation of growth, and so much has been achieved in one generation. They haven't had time to stop and think about it. you, You need this time, you need this time to stop and think about it, take a breath, and look at, okay, what have we done? Well, that was good, that was bad. What are we going to do in the future that's better? Hmm. And that that works for a country, it works for a business. And so when do you leave Shanghai? I left Shanghai in 2010 to come and work at Murdoch University as an assistant associate professor of journalism and media management. Wow, so what was it like entering the academy? I'd been doing a PhD, it was my second PhD, so uh, I was completing my second PhD and I was doing it at Murdoch, so I knew a lot of the academics. Uh-huh. Uh, and in Shanghai, I'd helped establish the double degree program in which I'm now teaching. So in 2008, we put that double degree program with uh, mm-hmm. uh, London School of Economics and Fudan University into place and I was one of the first lecturers in the program. Right. So. I wasn't new to academia, but I really did enjoy coming into the academy and just being focused on learning and, uh, and educating. And in terms of the teaching you're doing now at Fudan and the LSE through Fudan, Western journalism ethics, if I can use that expression, are they the heart of what you teach? Or do you tailor it? Do you learn from the learning? Do you impart the learning you got from the journalists you worked with when you were running the paper in Shanghai? No, I teach, I teach Western. Yeah. Western ethics. And that's what I want taught. I want to be taught the Western ethics in China. And they want to learn the Western. Ethics. They want to know that, uh, that this is acceptable. I mean, U.S. journalism teaching... Started Chinese journalism teaching in the 1920s, right. and the academies throughout China that teach journalism hold as a, hold as their basis that learning the learning structures that were first brought to China so long ago. Um, and while they're teaching according to those principles, um, journalists try to uh, professionally uh, operate according to those principles. But when it comes to the final say so of what gets published. That's out of the journalist's hands. Mm. But the government and the party are not trying to, to change or hinder university autonomy in this regard. No. They don't mind people being taught the precepts yep. as long as people will ultimately buckle or bend or accept. They want their journalists to be professional. They yeah. want them to be the best professionals that are possible because they've got to go and work for CCTV in New York, or London, or yep. wherever. Uh, and they've got to go and work for uh, Global Times and, and all of the other different institutions that where China has branch offices around the world to report the world to China. They want them to be able to operate the highest professional standards in these markets. So here's the, here's the, here's the, uh, the comparison. In those markets, we want you to be the best professional. By dint of that, we want our, our universities to train you to be the best possible profession. Mm. If you're going to be working for China Daily or whatever, Uh, You know, it's it's a little different. A little different. David, I've got one last question, which is the one that you must get asked at every dinner party you attend, and I've even been privy in the few days we've known one another to your dealing with this question. What is the future for journalism? As I've said to you, I think the future for journalism is very strong because fundamentally as journalists, Someone has got to capture the essence of the story. Someone's got to write the basic story. Mm. Someone's got to go out and interview people, do the pictures, take the video. They've got to get the story. Now which whichever platform it goes out on, fine. Doesn't matter. But someone's still got to write the fundamental story. Mm. Mm. And do it. And and the only and the best way to do it is the way we teach how to do it. And the way that we've been taught and the way we've been we've practiced Mm. doing it as Mm. journalists. And, you know, old guys like me who, who still uh, can stand up and spruik about the principles of journalism, the good side, the good principles, um, are still very relevant because those principles are as relevant today as they were in the 1800s, as they were in the 1920s when they were first being taught in China. So the fundamentals are still the same. Still, uh, Someone's got to write the story. The journalism is alive and well. And, of course, whereas... People in Australia, in the United States, in much of Western Europe, bemoan what's seen as the tragedy of the newspaper. The newspaper worldwide is booming. It's the golden age. It just doesn't look that way from those places because of the increasing numbers of people who are literate and the expanding nature of the world's middle class. So more readers after more content. More readers are looking for more content and there are more newspapers being published in China, in India, in developing nations in South America, in Africa. More newspapers are being published. More people are buying newspapers. It's just not in the traditional Western yeah. Australian American yeah. markets. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is increased literacy, there is increasing prosperity. and They want their newspaper. Well, if I can have an add-on to what was allegedly my last question. You said go out and get the story. Could you give us a, for instance, it doesn't have to be a real instance, of the, say, the skills that are needed to get a story. I'm there in the newsroom. What do I physically do? So you've got to recognise that it's a story. So you've got to have the intuition and and, uh, and the skill set to understand that it might be a story. So then you've got to work out, well, how am I going to get the story? Who am I going to talk to to get the story? Um, once I get the principal person that I'm looking for, I need to get another, another view of the story so I've got a balance to the story. So uh, if it's a political story, I need both sides of the political context. Um, if it's a breaking story, I need to understand what are the ramifications of me publishing this story. So I think about writing this story, and then I've got to think about the follow-up as well mm. because I want to hold on to the story. It's my story. I'm going to write the story. My byline's going to go on it. What's the follow-up? Mm-hmm. And what impact and what what impact does the story have through its relevance to the market mm-hmm. and to the news cycle of the day mm-hmm. and this truly is the last question the first threshold moment there knowing that this might be a story you mentioned instinct, but you also mentioned skills. What is it that lets alerts you to the fact that this is is not might be might not be a story you've you've got to know your market and you've got to know that your next-door neighbor when you get home and who says to you what did you do today say well I had this great story and and the reaction of your next-door neighbor is going to be that is such a fantastic story Mm. so it's got to be something that you know is going to be relevant to the people in your community or in your world this is like they explain your PhD to your mom in 25 words. Yes. And if she is an intelligent person who cares about you, doesn't get it, there's something, something <laughs> wrong. wrong. <laughs> well, David McGuire, thank yes. you so, so much. It's been wonderful getting to know you over the last uh, few days and wonderful to have this primer from you, not only about your own career, but about the past, present and future of journalism. It's a pleasure, Tami. It's been great to talk to you